So, Mark chapter 11. It's an interesting one, and I think there are some ways that we are used to looking at Mark chapter 11 that maybe we need to rethink a little. Uh, Just before we get into reading any of the passages, uh, I'll summarise for you a little bit of what happens. So Mark chapter 11 actually covers three days' worth of events. Day one, Jesus and his disciples and numerous other pilgrims who are travelling to Jerusalem for a festival, they come to Jerusalem and enter it. They've come from Jericho, so that's about an 18-mile journey. So it's, by the time they get there, it's quite late in the day. Jesus has a, a look around the temple, and then he leaves Jerusalem again and goes not quite a mile away to Bethany to stay for the night. Next day, he sets off from Bethany to come back into Jerusalem. On the way, he sees a fig tree and curses it then goes to the temple, overturns the tables of the money changers and the buyers and the sellers, does some teaching, and then goes back to Bethany for the night. Day three, Jesus comes back into Jerusalem, and on the way, the disciples spot that the fig tree that he cursed has withered from the roots, and uh, he makes a point, and then they go into into Jerusalem, And in the temple, he gets challenged on his authority. So that's, strictly speaking, what happens in this chapter. That doesn't really cover the oddness of it. I don't know about you, but when I was younger, um, I never really heard anybody explain why Jesus would have a fit of temper and curse a tree which wasn't in fruit in the season when even when it wasn't supposed to be in fruit. And why Jesus felt entitled to go into the temple and commit a violent act, disrupting the business of people who were just going about what they were supposed to be doing. Or at least as a child, that's how it seemed to me. And actually, there are some quite liberal theologians who seem to find it impossible to understand that Jesus is not just a human being, who interpret these passages in this very way. And they're quite disapproving. And it does seem a bit odd. Jesus using his miraculous power to destroy something rather than to bring life to it, and getting a bit violent. Although it doesn't say anybody got hurt. Also, we have Jesus, who up until now has been quite, not secretive, but trying to keep a lid on people talking about who he was. All of a sudden, he's going with a crowd who are all shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, and seems to be accepting all that praise. So what is going on? Is this just a sudden switch of personality? Of course it isn't. It isn't. It's quite a significant set of events, this. First of all, the entrance into Jerusalem. We sometimes call it the triumphal entry, don't we? But I would prefer to call it the lowly entry, actually. 
And what Jesus is doing here is he is making a statement, a statement which actually most of the crowd do not understand. You see, this is not Jesus being dragged along with the flow of events of a crowd who are wanting to crown him king and him just going along with it. In fact, it's pretty much the opposite. Jesus here is driving events and he is deliberately orchestrating them to make a point which the people around him don't really get. So, chapter 11, verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this? Tell him the Lord needs it and will send it back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest! And we'll leave it there for a minute. So Jesus sends his disciples to find a very significant animal. Up until now, he's been quite content to walk everywhere or occasionally catch a boat if there's water in the way. But now, very unusual, unusually, he decides to ride into Jerusalem. That wasn't normal for any pilgrim, really. Not just that, he is deliberately harking back to a verse in the Old Testament, Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9 which had been understood for hundreds of years to be a prophecy about the Messiah who had come to save Israel. Zechariah 9.9 says that the Messiah will come riding on a colt, a young one, a young animal, and that that colt will bear the king to much rejoicing. Not only that, it specifically says in the passage that this colt had never been ridden. And in the Old Testament, animals that were going to be used for a sacred purpose or a royal purpose, they couldn't have been ridden by anybody else before. Just to rub the point in, the, the, the text tells us that the colt was tied up and had to be untied. And way back in Genesis 49, verse 11, there is a very ancient, one of the earliest prophecies about the Messiah, which talks about a colt that is tied up. So Jesus is very deliberately coming out of the shadows and stating that he is the Messiah. In other words, he is the one who's long been promised by God to come and rescue and save Israel, and that he's in the line of David and he is a king. So this is not Jesus being swept along by events. What about the crowd? 
Do they recognize what he is saying here? Well, I'm not sure that they do. It says that they were waving palm branches that they'd taken from the fields. That was fairly customary at some of the festivals, particularly the Festival of Tabernacles. It says that they were, um, that they were shouting out verses from Psalms. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, again, as pilgrims approached Jerusalem for festivals, they would be singing the Hallel Psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, the Psalms that you would sing as you went towards Jerusalem. And that's what they're doing here. So it's a crappy, excited crowd of people who are coming within sight of Jerusalem and the amazing temple complex that had been built by Herod. No doubt some of them were thinking along the lines of messianic prophecy because a lot of the Jewish festivals were to do with remembering when God had saved the people and, of course, they were under persecution and occupation by the Romans. Some of them were people, one of the other Gospels tells us, who'd seen Lazarus's resurrection from the dead and so therefore were just agog to see what next was going to happen. Other people didn't have a clue who Jesus was in Jerusalem and were just asking, who is this? And some people were saying, well, we think he's a prophet, certainly a rabbi, worth watching. So there was all this hubbub going on along around Jesus. I don't think any of them really fully understood at the time the significance of what Jesus was acting out here. And those who were hoping he was going to be a messianic king, they had no clue about what kind of a king he was going to be. Even though the rabbis actually had always struggled with that verse in Zechariah because they said, well, why would a king come on a donkey? Well, that's a clue. He's a different kind of king. Not only that, did you notice that he even said, uh, don't worry, I'm going to send the donkey straight back. He's not a king who robs and plunders. (laughs) He's not come to take. He's come to give. And I sometimes wonder if Jesus felt a bit lonely in that crowd of people, all happy, all celebrating him, all happy to see him, all respecting him, but not having a clue about what was facing him. The crowds were a bit oblivious to exactly who they had in their midst. He was right there and they couldn't see it. They were enjoying the excitement of the group. They were enjoying their religious activity. And yet they missed Jesus in the middle of it. I think there is a lesson for us there. I don't think the lesson is so much about the fickleness of the crowd cheering him one week, calling for his crucifixion the next week. I think the message is that sometimes we can get so caught up in the group experience of our faith that we lose sight of Jesus himself. We can get so caught up in the busyness of our faith life that we forget to meet with Jesus and to see him as our king. 
crowd missed seeing Jesus. And I think for me, this has raised the question for me this week as I've been looking at this passage. When was the last time I spent time with Jesus just for the sake of having time with Jesus? When's the last time I heard him speak to me and show me who he is and show me who I am? At the end of all of that, it says that Jesus goes into Jerusalem, verse 11, and he goes into the temple. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The word that Mark uses there for looking around is not the kind of, ooh, wow, look at it, isn't it big, isn't it wonderful, kind of looking around, the gawking of a spectator or of a, a tourist. And it's not even the looking around of a pilgrim who's looking around reverentially. It's, it's a word which means to scrutinize carefully. Jesus has entered Jerusalem as its king. He's entered the temple as its king. And he's inspecting his temple. And that is really important because it means the events of the next day are not impetuous events where he has lost his temper. Jesus already knows the night before what his father is saying to him about what he should be doing the next day. So that brings us to the fig tree. He goes back to Bethany, possibly even at the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, and starts to come back in the next morning. So we're going to pick it back up again in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. Now this cursing of the fig tree is is not anything to do with the tree. (laughs) Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem to perform a prophetic act in the temple. He's hungry and he sees a fig tree which makes him think of fig trees and figs. And that puts him in mind of another prophetic act which he can perform to make another statement to the world if it will understand it. In the Old Testament, the fig tree very often represented Israel and Israel's relationship with God. So if a fruitful fig tree was an Israel that was being faithful and that was obeying the Lord's commands. A fig tree without figs was often used as a picture of Israel that had left God and was being unfaithful and which was not living the righteous life that he'd asked of them. There are a number of verses you can look up where that is the case. So seeing a tree that is in full leaf so apparently healthy, and yet with no figs, Jesus says that is a picture of Israel. And his curse on the fig tree is to say, you are not being fruitful now, and you never will be again. It's his judgment on Israel. 
And when he goes into the temple, he takes this further. Verse 15. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple area and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. So, what's going on here? Jesus goes into the temple and he sees the normal business of the temple taking place. When pilgrims went to Jerusalem, they had to pay an annual shekel tax. And this shekel was actually a special kind of shekel called a Tyrian shekel, which was the closest they had to the old ancient Hebrew shekel that was specified in the law of Moses that they had to pay. So people who came with other kinds of currency had to exchange it for the right kind of currency to be able to pay their annual tax. That annual tax paid for the priests to be able to perform the sacrifices for the the forgiveness of sins for the nation. So they were important. Not only that, but people could buy additionally small birds or animals, depending on how much money you had, in order to do um, an act of worship, an act of thanksgiving, uh, an act of uh, penance for sin, um, a request from God, a cleansing, an act of cleansing that would make you fit to go into the temple. All of these things had to be provided somehow, and that was what was going on. And there were various vessels going backwards and forwards that were used in the ceremonies. Jesus disrupts all of this. And the usual interpretation of that, and I'm not saying it's necessarily wrong, is that what Jesus is doing by overturning these tables and stopping people carrying out their business is he is protesting against the use of the temple for business and probably dishonest business. Around the inner courtyard where the Holy of Holies was and where the sacrifices were made was a very large forecourt. It could hold thousands. That was the only part of the temple that Gentiles could set foot in. There was a low wall called the Soreg which divided them, which prevented them from going any further and entering into God's presence or making sacrifices. So if these stalls and the marketplace was all going on there in that forecourt, it was taking up the only space that Gentiles had to pray. Now, it wasn't really regarded as a special place to pray, but it was the only place that Gentiles could go in the temple. And so it could very well be that what Jesus is saying here is that this is not a right use of the temple grounds. And it is preventing people from worshipping me who might be on their journey to becoming a Jew. That's very possible that it means that. Apparently, it was quite a new practice 
for those stalls to be set up at the temple. There were already four markets that were held on the Mount of Olives nearby for that business. And it seems that Caiaphas, the high priest, who had a bit of a reputation for liking money, had set up some market stalls within the temple specifically to be in competition with those other markets and to make money out of it. So it could very well be that this was an an inappropriate use of the temple grounds. However, there might also be a deeper meaning here, I think. If you look at the verses that Jesus refers to in verse 17... He says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. That's taking bits from two Old Testament verses. The first one is Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. And in Isaiah 56, God is saying that his great desire is for foreigners and for outcasts to be blessed through Israel. And that he wants to see them worshipping in the temple and enjoying his presence. He talks about them rejoicing in his temple courts and making sacrifices. Well, that wasn't allowed to happen in the temple system in Jesus' time. Those people were excluded. If you weren't physically whole, you were excluded. If you were not a Jew, you were excluded. And the other bit of the verse is from Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 11, where God calls the people of Judah a den of robbers. And if you look at the context of that, he's not saying that they are being dishonest within the temple. What he's saying is that the people of Judah at that time were actually disobeying God, being unfaithful, oppressing the poor, And then they were retreating back to the temple and making sacrifices in the belief that that made everything okay. So they were using it like robbers who go out and steal and plunder and then go back to their den. So it might very well be that what was going on on in the temple was not dishonest. And that in fact, what Jesus was saying here was that you've got all this amazing superstructure. Herod had built an incredible complex that was one of the wonders of the world. You've got all these sacrifices going on daily. You are performing your religious rituals and your worship, and yet your life does not match up to it. You think what goes on outside is irrelevant to what goes on inside my temple. He, I think, is denouncing not just corruption, but the whole temple system. It looked healthy because there was a lot of religious activity going on. But actually, Israel had lost their way. God's people had lost their way completely. Jerusalem had become an economic hub. The temple was 
uh, hugely important economically and politically. A lot of people made a lot of money out of the temple system and got a lot of prestige and a lot of wealth from the, from the temple system. They got a lot of political power. Israel at this time was riven by factions all jockeying for political influence all jockeying for influence in a religious sense over the people. God, it seems, was almost the last thing on their mind. They didn't love God so much as they loved themselves and the status quo and the wealth and the status which they derived from the system. They paid lip service to repentance while not changing their lives. They'd become exclusive and hard-hearted towards those who God wanted to draw in. All those people that Jesus reached out to, they wanted nothing to do with. They put barriers in their way of coming to know and worship God. And Jesus saying, this is a nation, this is a people who are not fruitful. And there are some really big questions we need to ask ourselves. Jesus, the king, is saying he wants his people to be fruitful. If our religious activity, if our services, if our meetings, if our groups, if even our Bible reading and our prayer become meaningless if they just become a system that perpetuates itself without effecting any inward transformation and outward action then we are not being fruitful if we are complacent about being the people of God and about us having received our salvation And we are not drawing in all those who God wants to see drawn into his family. Then we are not being fruitful. And I have really asked myself the question, am I being fruitful? Am I being busy? Yes. Am I being fruitful? Jesus was announcing the death of an old system and the beginning of something new. His plan was to break out of the walls of the temple, to allow God's love and his mercy and grace to reach out to the whole world. He didn't just intend the mere battle or victory of an army over an empire it was far greater than that and it was to be accomplished by the shedding of his own blood not anybody else's all those sacrifices all that priestly system it had always only pointed forward to him so that he could actually have a worldwide people who could be fruitful What is fruitfulness? It can mean 
growing more like Jesus in character, displaying the fruit of the Spirit. It can mean being rich in good works, serving others, bringing about justice and righteousness and truth and beauty in the world. And it can mean being a witness to the good news of Jesus Christ. Are we doing that? I look around and I can see people who I could definitely say yes in spades, in buckets. But it's easy for any of us at times to lose sight of the king and to lose sight of why we're doing what we're doing. What about during the coronavirus? How can we as a church be fruitful for God during the coronavirus? I received an email in the week um, where somebody quoted what had been written about Christians during a plague in Rome between the years 250 and 261 AD. And Cyprian of Carthage witnessed what was going on. It was far worse than coronavirus. Apparently, at at its peak, 5,000 people a day were dying in Rome of this plague. And Cyprian wrote this about the Christians. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy, for they were infected by others with the disease drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbours and cheerfully accepting their pains. That's not following the government guidelines, is it? (laughs) Now, I'm not saying what you should do. All I'm saying is that God's idea of fruitfulness can be costly. And it's hard to be fruitful if we haven't first submitted ourselves to him as our, as our king. Most of us want our lives to count. We want our lives to matter, to make a difference for the Lord. But if Jesus is going to be able to do anything with us or through us, we have to first of all let himself do something to us and in us. We have to come back to him, recognise him, not just as our friend, not just as our saviour, but as our king. And that means we put what he says first, and we love others above ourselves. And that's really hard. We can't do that unless we really allow ourselves to encounter God and be transformed by him, to be so overwhelmed by his love and his amazingness that we will submit everything to him. So we have a king who wants us to be fruitful. Let's just spend a few minutes coming before him.
acknowledging that he deserves anything that we can give him, everything that we can give him. He is the king who came to die, to suffer for us, in order to give us life. He is the king who broke out of religious systems that would limit God and bust open God's rivers of grace to flow to the whole world. Let's acknowledge his rightful place in our lives. Let's acknowledge our inability to do what he wants by trying harder. But let us submit our wills to him and say that we will try harder in his power and in his grace. We will become more like Jesus in our character, in our actions, in our speech and our witness. We will listen to him and see where he wants us to go, what he wants us to do. And we will love extravagantly as he loves us. Perhaps if you feel you've lost touch with Jesus a little bit in the busyness of life, resolve to be with him this week. Properly be with him and listen. And let's as a church not be a fig tree without figs or having the appearance of being healthy but not able to do anyone any good. Lord, come and help us to grow. Help us to bear fruit. And help us to obey our King. Amen.